0: Hello and welcome to Obertur Dicta, Bloomsbury Professionals' podcast on all things law and tax with me, Rachel Sherlock and also Grania McMahon. Our episode today is the second of a two-part interview with Helen Johnson BL, author of A Guide to Trademark Law and Practice in Ireland, the second edition of which was recently published. Helen is a practising barrister specialising in intellectual property. She also lectures at the Law Society of Ireland, where she helped to design the postgraduate courses on intellectual property and trademark law. In this episode, Helen takes us through some of the most interesting and important cases in IP and copyright law, as well as discussing her interest in making trademark law more accessible to both practitioners and applicants. If you missed the first part of our discussion, make sure to listen back, but otherwise we hope you enjoy the episode. Helen, can we chat about some of the cases that are of relevance to practitioners now? Of course, we in Ireland had the interesting case of McDonald's and Supermax uh, at the European IP office. Could you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so golly, it's like your team McDonald's or your team Supermax. Um, I'm from the West of Ireland, so people don't know what team I am. But yeah, basically, this was a spat uh, at at the EU IPO, which is the IP office that registers pan-European trademarks. And Big Mac, um, which we all know and love, uh, was registered in various kind of food-type classes and also for food services, takeaway services and stuff like that. And it had a registration. McDonald's had a registration for Big Mac. Uh, It's been registered since 1998. And then in 2017, Supermax came along. I think Supermax had applied to register their trademark and the Big Mac one Uh, was an obstacle so again as i was saying earlier if you're on the defense you think about trying to take out the trademark that's causing you trouble so supermax filed a revocation action at the eu ipo against big mac basically saying look you haven't used it on all the goods and services that you have it registered for and really where mcdonald's fell down here was that they didn't file sufficient evidence so they they it was up to them to show their use of big mac then so they filed um, you know, a couple of affidavits signed by company representatives in Germany, France and the UK. They had uh, promotional merchandise menus, brochures, samples of the Big Mac in use. Uh, they had extracts from McDonald's websites and they also had extracts from Wikipedia, which really isn't, I suppose, evidence that one would be relying on in, in an IP dispute. So the cancellation division of the EU IPO, who, who determined the matter, Basically, found that the you know the affidavits were in house; they weren't independent. The websites again were the websites of the proprietor; they weren't independent. There was no details of commercial transactions elsewhere, Uh, so they revoked the mark. So that meant then that McDonald's had lost its entire protections at the EU IPO for Big Mac. But they appealed and they effectively mended their hand, filed uh, more evidence, which they should have done at the outset, really. So they had consumer surveys in there they had affidavits in relation to sales of Big Mac in France in relation to expenditure uh, on advertising and the like in, o- in other European countries and they were able to claw back a good bit of their protection predominantly for burgers and it was found that the Big Mac was their flagship burger uh, and they also got it for takeaway services and food services and stuff like that but I mean it was a great victory for Supermax at first instance and then McDonald's, as I said, clawed their way back a bit uh, on appeal. But yeah, it just shows how important it is to, to use your trademark on everything that you have protection for, because otherwise you're just leaving yourself open to that type of an attack.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, uh, it, it's it's so interesting when such a big identifiable brand has, has a bit of a scrap with one of our own at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then there was the case of McCambridge's uh, v Joseph Brennan, which you refer to in your book.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, I had been at the bar for a few years. I went off and worked for an IP firm and I came back to the bar and was lucky enough to devil with a phenomenal IP master. Uh, And one of the first consultations he brought me to, he was acting for McCambridge's in McCambridge's and Brennan's. And that was one of the first consultations I went to with him. So that was, I suppose that's probably... Probably the most iconic passing off case in the country, it concerned whole wheat bread. Painters McCambridge, as we all know, um, it has, you know, the bread has the transparent bag with the dark green colour on it and the signature script, John McCambridge, with the sheaf of wheat. They've been on the go. I think McCambridge started out in the 40s. They incorporated then a couple of decades later and they've been using that see-through packaging with the green, Uh, since the late 90s and then we have Brennan's who today's bread today red and yellow everyone knows it it's the market leader in Ireland it does brown bread and white bread whereas McCambridge's is very much whole wheat bread but again I think it was about 2010 or 2011 for some reason Brennan's decided that they would adopt dark green on their packaging Uh, and their packaging just basically sailed too close to the wind and it ended up in proceedings in the high court where McCambridge has just said basically the shape, the layout, the design is too similar to ours. You're using similar colours, you know, very, very similar shade of green. Uh, there was white writing on the green background. There was a stylized signature used by Brennan's. Uh, just various things. It was just way too close. So yeah, the passing off proceedings were, were heard in the High Court and McCambridge has succeeded. It was appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court found that the High Court got it right. But what is interesting, I suppose, about the McCambridge's decision is when we think of reliefs for IP infringement or for passing off, uh, you can get your injunction or you can get damages or an account of profits. Now, you can't get damages and an account of profits, it's either or, and this was the first case really in Ireland that spoke about an account of profits and how they are looked at and how the court deals with them. and. An account of profits is a discretionary remedy so a court can you know, shoot down your application for an account of profits if it thinks it's unfair. But what was interesting here was, I think Brennan's had made 600,000 profit on this particular bread, but the it was the proportion of that profit which was attributable to the packaging that was key. So that, you know, not just the overall use, it was just just the packaging. So that's why I suppose I find that a particular decision very very interesting and great of course it was great to be involved in the case.
2: Wow that's really interesting Um, there was an all, also another passing off case from again the west of Ireland Helen Galway free-range eggs versus O'Brien what happened to that one? I know bread and eggs where would we be without them?
1: <laughs> yeah so this particular one this is the most uh, I suppose recent passing off case there was uh, people over in, in Galway who had been selling eggs since the 90s and they sold them as Galway free-range eggs and then they subsequently you know incorporated a company got a trademark registration. So they had their two rights there. They had their unregistered rights, which they built up to trade since the 90s, and they had their trademark registration. People have been supplying eggs to them, and some of the people who have been supplying eggs to them then decided to go out on their own. So they called their eggs O'Brien's Free Range Eggs Galway. So what we had was Galway Free Range Eggs used since the 90s versus O'Brien's Free Range Eggs Galway. Anyway, to cut a long story short, it ended up in the High Court trademark infringement and a passing off case. It was heard by Judge O'Connor in 2016. And what was interesting was both sides relied on survey evidence, which you don't normally see because survey evidence can be quite expensive. You'd see it more in the UK. But uh, in terms of the survey evidence, the plaintiffs who had been using Galway free-range eggs since the 90s, they, they surveyed 200 people and 47% 47% of the people that they had surveyed recognized Galway Free Range Eggs as denoting their brand. And 38% were confused between their brand and the O'Brien's Free Range Eggs Galway. The defendants also carried out a survey. And their survey was carried out of, I think it was uh, business people in Galway, and they carried it out online. And in respect to that survey, 58% recognized the plaintiff's brand, but 57% were confused between the two brands. So, I mean, it was, I think it was pretty clear that there was confusion there, but, uh, the trademark infringement claim failed and the passing off claim failed. And I won't even go into the reasons why that happened, but it was just really a misapplication of the law. And then it was appealed to the court of appeal and Judge Costello, great judge, she heard that and basically found that the plaintiff had established its, uh, the goodwill in its, in its eggs. I should say to, to very, very briefly, there's a three step test for passing off and to establish and to succeed in the passing off claim, you have to meet three different parts of the test. The first is goodwill or that you have a repute. The second is misrepresentation. And the third is damage. So uh, there's no requirement to show actual damage. It's really, I suppose, the effect on goodwill that is the damage. But Judge Costello held in favour of go away free range eggs all the way and found that they had met the test. So, again, it's an, an interesting one. And was it also concerned? To get up and get up is so important. We forget about get up when we're coming up with packaging and goods. But again, it's something I see landing on my desk more and more that the, the words might be quite different, but the packaging is so similar that, and the packaging might be totally iconic in terms of who's brought it out first. So there's, a, yeah, again, a lot to think about in terms of rights. It's not just names.
2: That's really interesting, and um, might I say, Helen, that you've dealt with the three-part test in great detail in your book. So, if anyone wants to check it out, it's on Bloomsbury Professional online on the ITIP service, and they can also buy the book. And the book is it's wealth of information, as you said. Moving to the case, then, Helen, I wonder if you could tell us about this one, which involved pharma goods, and that's Nutri Medical versus New Altra.
1: Yeah, so this this was an interesting one because Nutri Medical, the plaintiffs, had a trademark for Nutriplete, and the defendants were using Nutriplan. Now, whilst the plaintiffs had a trademark for pleat, they didn't use that, and what their trademark covered was class five goods, so it was um, kind of medical nutritional supplements or what you might be used in peg feeding or tube feeding, and so that was pleat. Uh, the defendants brought out nutri and they used that for effectively oral nutrition and supplements. So the things that you might see in nursing homes in small bottles or what people who have just, you know, people who are infirm or people who are post-op may consume, I suppose, to build themselves back up. So the spat was between YouTube nutri whether or not there was confusion there. The plaintiffs wrote a cease and desist letter to the defendants sought various undertakings. The defendants didn't want to give the undertakings. They did rebrand, but there were still some references to NutriPlen that lingered online and then the the High Court uh, proceedings were taken. Now, the thing about the High Court proceedings that were taken where they lasted for 10 days. They say that the costs would have been about 2 million and to cut a long story short, as as I said at the outset, the plaintiffs haven't been using their marks. So it was like, well, how do you measure damages here? So what the court looked at, was I suppose the value of an ocean and license? If uh, the plaintiff were to license the mark to the defendants, what would that have cost? And each side called evidence there in relation to the value of a, of a, a hypothetical license. The plaintiffs that theirs valued at two hundred and sixty thousand euro. The defendants were coming in at between ten and twenty thousand euro for a license of the mark. But the judge noted that the mark had been used by the defendants, usually plen. Uh, Had been used by the defendants for three and a half years, and he awarded damages of thirty five thousand to the plaintiffs. So you have a ten day case for a mark that was never used, which they're entitled to enforce, by the way. But you know, was never used, and the outcome was uh, a huge cost bill and thirty five k of an award. But that that really would be one of the most recent uh, infringement cases out there and yeah it went on for quite the time
0: really incredible stuff and could you talk us through the facts and outcome of the aviation case involving aviarito versus global closing room which dealt with infringement
1: yeah so this is the most recent uh, trademark infringement case of which i'm aware and it was uh, an application for an injunction and it was the first case i suppose where the reformulated test for um, an injunction from the Merck and Plan Mel case, the first time that was applied in a trademark matter. So, yeah, it's quite technical, really. So I won't go too much into the facts. But the plaintiffs were involved in air transport communications, and they operated a register. It was the International Registry of Mobile Assets in Aircraft Equipment, which is all—it's all tangled up in air, aircraft leasing law and the Cape Town Convention. But they owned a trademark for closing room and it was a system that they took seven years to develop and they spent millions on it. So they had their app, their registration, European trademark for closing room. The defendant came along and registered a domain name, Global Closing Room, and also filed a, an EU trademark for that, which was opposed. And to cut a long story short, it ended up in the High Court before Judge Butler. The defendant had used its mark on the open market, whereas the plaintiff's mark was very much used in relation to this pre-registration facility connected with with air uh, aircraft leasing but the judge um, she went through this the particular steps of the test and uh, ultimately found there was a fair issue to be tried and um, whereas the defendant could be compensated in damages uh, the plaintiff could not and also spoke about clearing the path you know if the defendant wanted to use a mark that was so similar to the plaintiff should it have tried to maybe invalidate the plaintiff's mark? first to clear the way for that use. The defendant here, it should be said, had three different uh, trademarks that it used. So it tried to say that it would have to rebrand and everything. But realistically, uh, it had two other trademarks it could rely on. So there had as well been, there was, um, I think maybe it might have been a parent company of the defendant had entered a settlement with the plaintiff. So the parties were aware of each other's trademarks. And the judge basically said, look, it was a really high risk strategy adopting the trademark that you did. And she granted the injunction. But that I suppose, would, would be the most recent case on trademark infringement uh, before the Irish courts that I'm aware of. And again, aircraft leasing is so- something I know nothing about there. That's where things will probably become quite technical, but a uh, very interesting one, nonetheless.
0: Absolutely. And then moving to Europe, uh, there was the topic of invalidity in Iceland foods versus I- the Icelandic Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I
1: find this one hugely fascinating. Well, Iceland, as we know, a a geographical term, geographical terms really should be kept free for all to use and probably shouldn't be registered at all, but they they do get through. And yeah, you'll note that it was an invalidity action. So that, that basically tells you that just because a trademark is registered doesn't mean it can't be attacked. You're not safe if you have a registered trademark. People can come out of the woodwork and attack you. But basically, Iceland foods, everyone will know and recognise they have been on the go since the 70s. They have probably nearly a 1,000 uh, outlets around the globe. They employ definitely 20,000, if not more, staff. And they had a registra- registration in Europe, a pan-European registration for eight different classes of goods, mainly foodie-type stuff and retail uh, for Iceland. And the mark was registered. And then, effectively, Iceland as a country, there was different facets like the Tourist Board and ministers and stuff, uh, Decided to attack the registration at the EU IPO on the grounds that it was descriptive, and it ended up becoming a huge battle. Um, Iceland Store had to, I suppose, show that because of the use that it had made of Iceland for over fifty years, the name had become synonymous with it, and it had acquired distinctiveness as a result. That's the thing: if somebody fire, if somebody uses a, a mark that is maybe descriptive, but you use it for long enough, such that people, that the public, recognise it as yours. You can have acquired distinctiveness, and that's one of the ways in which a descriptive mark may be registered, but really you should be steering clear of geographical terms. But anyway, look, in 2019, the cancellation division struck down the Iceland trademark. Uh, Iceland Foods, obviously, huge entity. They appealed, and what was interesting in this court was uh, there is an appeal board, various, uh, there's probably about five or six appeal boards um, at the EU IPO, but this went to the grand board, so it was... A big big deal, and there was an oral hearing there. Again, that seldom, if ever, happens. That there's an oral hearing eh, at the EU IPO. Most of our arguments are done on paper there by way of submissions. So yeah, the, the Grand Board of Appeal of the EU IPO heard the case in December 2022, and basically said that you know the public knows Iceland as a country, it's renowned for its tourism, its flora, its fauna, its fish, blah blah blah, and um yeah. Upheld the decision, so the Iceland trademark now at a pan-European level is gone, and uh, I suppose it should sound a note of caution for anybody who is trying to register geographic terms.
2: Wow, uh, really good one. Um, and the final case, and thank you for bringing us through all of these because they're just absolutely fascinating. One that many people may be aware of, Helen, uh, the UK case of the Duchess of Sussex versus Associated Newspapers. What happened in that one? Yeah, so th- so I suppose as I said before, there and. Um, When you think of it, you know,
1: the remedies available to you or the reliefs available to you if you're bringing an infringement or a passing off claim, it's damages, account of profits. But there's also a suite of remedies, other remedies available under the IP enforcement regulations which came in in Ireland in 2006. And under that, you can seek an order for an order that discloses information about infringing goods, like where have they been distributed, who's been distributing them. You can also seek an order for recall or destruction of infringing goods. And uh, the third thing is you can look for an order for the publication of judgments. Now, that's never been done in Ireland. I looked for it in one case. I wasn't getting a hop from the judge. But it's really, really interesting because if a decision is out there in your favor, to think that you could maybe, uh, you know, ask a court that the defendant has to publish that on their website or something. I mean, it's really punitive and it's a huge deterrent. So anyway, in the case of the Duchess of Sussex and Associated Newspapers, everybody will, of course, know, Meghan Markle, everybody knows me, knows I'm a huge fan of the royal family. Not a huge fan of Meghan Markle, but that's another podcast entirely. But anyway, so before her wedding, she wrote a letter to her father, Thomas Markle. There was a big hullabaloo over whether or not he would attend the royal wedding. The papers printed extracts from her letter. It, it fell into public, the public domain, obviously, and uh, the extracts were, were printed in the paper. I mean, they were sensational. And so a copyright infringement claim was taken by the Duchess of Sussex and also she claimed that it was a misuse of her private information but in the suite of remedies she was looking for one of them was an order for publication of the judgment because she did succeed in her claim and the court there in England it's the only case I am aware of where such an order has been made to date the court said yeah look this this order is appropriate and then it considered the kind of form that the order should take and the, the kind of statement that should be made and basically, there was a statement made on the front page of the paper, and then a notice inside the paper. So a huge deterrent. Haven't seen it in an Irish case, but looking forward to seeing the, the first judge that might order it here because it is pretty drastic.
2: Yeah, it is, Helen, and uh, one to watch. I mentioned earlier about your fantastic book, A Guide to Trademark Law and Practice in Ireland, published by Bloomsbury, and also available on the Bloomsbury Professional Online IT IP service. It's Excellent. First of all, congratulations to you. And secondly, did you enjoy writing the book?
1: (laughs) Well, the book, it was the second edition, so it was long overdue. The first edition, I think, came out 10 years earlier. So, uh, yeah, that was kind of hanging over my head. But there was a change of law on a pan-European level. All the law was updated uh, and came into operation around 2019. So, yeah, I had to pull the finger out. Was it an enjoyable process? I found my first grey hair, so uh, not too sure about that. You know, it's it's always so rewarding seeing the book in print. Uh, it can be a challenge, of course, getting there, but it was hugely rewarding. And yeah, I'm, I'm delighted that I did it.
2: And we're so delighted to have it. Did you find it, actually, because often I ask authors and I'm always interested with their reply. Is it easier to update an edition than start the whole book afresh?
1: god i don't know what other people say i wish i'd started afresh i'm really bad at tracking things mm. and yeah no i would completely start from you know start from fresh if i were to do maybe for the third edition gronia yeah. what do you think i'll, yes. start, I'll start afresh I my family would shoot me or my friends would shoot me if i even think about bringing out another book but look you know it was very very uh, interesting and really why i wanted to do it i suppose was um so that people are not, to, to maybe demystify the whole thing, you know. Uh, firstly, it I really was the first edition I had brought out because I wanted those who are sitting the, the IP or the trademark agent exam in Ireland to, to have a guide that they could go to that was practical because we can all pick up IP books and read about the latest cases and discussions about judgments, but that's not going to help you, you know, how you prepare and file. So the book is very much geared towards preparing and filing trademark applications and then also I wanted to people to know, people who have trademark rights, how to object if somebody comes too close to them in terms of other brands that are out there or other trade names. Uh, I wanted them to know how to enforce their rights. I wanted to know how, how they could defend their rights if they were met with infringement or passing off proceedings. And then also how to exploit their rights and, and to, to make some money from that. And there's also chapters in there about um you Know, kind of management of registers and stuff like that. So, in the main, I just wanted something really, really practical, something that you can pick up that it, you know, it tells it like it is in, in easy to understand English. And that, that was really, I suppose, the aim in bringing it out. And um, thank you to Bloomsbury for putting up with me. My God, your patience knows no bounds. But uh, yeah, no, it was, um, it's always worthwhile.
0: No, it's absolutely our pleasure. And like you said, it's such a great practical book. And you've covered some of the, some of the areas in which it's of use to both uh, practitioners aiming to qualify as trademark agents, but also those just working in the area. But if there's any last kind of bits that you want to highlight for people, maybe you can talk us through that.
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I just think it's just, it's an easy read and you can dip in and out of chapters. And as I say, you know, especially as with a lot of the solicitors who I'd work with, hugely busy. They might not have the time to go looking at all the websites. So what I did try to do is to consolidate as much information as I could in there. And that's hopefully what it is, is a consolidation of all the relevant information that you need uh, in order to have um, a consultation with the client or in order to file an application yourself. And there's no reason why people can't file applications themselves. If I can do it, anybody can do it.
2: Helen, it's really obvious from speaking to you that you absolutely love your work. Is that would that, would that be fair to say?
1: I do. i have such, you know, such a stray. Somebody described their practice once as a mongrel practice. I totally have a mongrel practice, because I mean, there is, I do a lot of kind of wildlife prosecutions, animal welfare prosecutions, and then you have IP, which is completely different. But as yeah, I first became involved or studied IP in 2008. I was lucky enough to study in. LSE in London and I just completely and utterly fell in love with it and I you know it's funky law Uh, I could not be knee deep in folios or conveyancing or any of that I would actually I don't know I'd have to be carted off this is you know you get people who are starting out in business hugely exciting and then you get established brands and people with phenomenal inventions so every day is so exciting you don't know what's going to land on the desk it is such a privilege to be able to help people to protect those rights and then, of course, it's really bittersweet when somebody comes in, especially young people. Like I might have teenagers coming in who have come up with something in TY and their parents think, oh, my God, this is, you know, he's going to be the next Elon Musk. And you have to turn around and tell them that that's already been done. And uh, That can be a bit heartbreaking. But, yeah, it's just such a variety and variety is the spice of life, isn't it? So it's it's great. You never know what you're going to come across in a day's work.
0: And even with that level of variety, you have a whole extra string to your bow, which is lecturing, which you've done quite a bit of as well. Uh, Do you like the mix?
1: Yeah, I love the mix and yeah, I, I mean I like to keep my hand in lecturing, but what I really prefer is tutoring, you know, the more practical hands-on. And I would have done a lot of that back in the law society in the day. And yeah, you're always throwing curveballs, and that's always good to keep you on your toes. There will always be a curveball. So yeah, I really I mean, I'm hugely passionate without sounding cheesy, about legal education, about access to law, about diversity in the profession. I think the bar is getting better at it, but I do think there's a lot more we can do. So yeah, very very interested in legal education in any um, shape or form that it takes.
0: That's amazing. So thank you so much for speaking with us. We just have our last few roundup of lighter questions. Uh, So number one, top three things you would take to a desert island.
1: Ooh, yeah, this is a hard one. I'm going to cheat rather than things I am going to bring people, if that's allowed. Go for it. I don't know if you're into podcasts, but I'm obsessed with the rest is football. So I'm going to bring the three boys from the rest is football. So we have Gary Lineker, who I have loved since I was 10. I still love him. Uh, Micah Richards, who I don't know if you know him, former Man City player. His laugh is the funniest laugh I've heard in my life. If you could bottle his laugh and sell it, the world would be a better place. And then there's Alan Shearer who, of course, is iconic in, in UK football. Uh, Alan does a lot of swearing. I do a lot of swearing. So some of those, are going to have to bring a swear box to the island as well. But yeah, they're the ones I'm going to bring with me because they will be a constant source of entertainment.
0: You could just have a, a an ongoing podcast experience. It's like being down the pub,
1: like <laughs> listening to your mates, listen to the podcast. I listen on the way to court and I walk into the bar room with a beam on my face. It's great. They're hilarious. Love them. Absolutely love them.
0: Okay. And then number two, uh, current book you are reading.
1: Oh, God, I'm an awful bookworm. So I tend to have a few on the go. What am I reading? at the? Mi- There's a lot of tat on the bedside locker, so I won't even go there. What, what's hugely helpful, actually, and what I wish I had, uh, although it wasn't out at the time when I was studying law, especially when I was in the inns, is The Art of Explanation by Roz Atkins. It is brilliant. All about, like, doing all your research, but then keeping your message really, really simple. So, yeah, love that book. What else am I reading? Oh yeah, I, I mentioned I, I prosecute animal welfare. Niall Harbison is an Irish man who helps. You probably know him from Twitter. He helps street dogs in Thailand. Love him. And I yep. follow him everything. Oh my God, all oh, the dogs, Rodney, <laughs> Sina, Macmuffin. I love them. His book is brilliant. That's a brilliant read. So that's also on the bedside locker. And then actually just this week, um, a very, very dear copyright lawyer friend of mine sent me a book called Strangers in the House. It's by a man called Raja Shehada. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And she had got it in Jerusalem. And he's a Palestinian lawyer. He's a human rights activist activist, and it's a memoir uh, of living in the occupied territories. So it is hugely timely, unfortunately. But yeah, that's a really, really good read. And that might appeal to the lawyers listening as well.
0: Absolutely. Really moving stuff. Then maybe to a, a slightly different tone. Last time you had a good laugh.
1: Oh, God. Well, I'm on circuit and going around district courts a lot as well. And anytime I go into a Midland bar room, you're guaranteed a laugh. They are a constant source of wit, humor, mischief, skullduggery. You get great crack. That's, that's yeah, it's a bit sad, but that's where I get my kicks these days in the bar room. Used to be in the bar. Now it's the bar room.
0: And then finally, we've heard how much you love your career. So it may be hard to imagine yourself doing something else. But if you had to do something else for a career, what would it be?
1: Golly, again. Yeah, I mean, we all go through phases of going, ah, but not to change career. But um, yeah, maybe a milliner. I did go through a phase of making a lot of fascinators. Yeah, with a had my glue gun on, uh, at the ready. I had so many weddings to go to. And I said, all right, I'm just going to make them. Uh, either that, or what I suppose a huge love, and what I've always thought, I what I always really wanted to do. I come from a family lawyer, so I had no choice. Well, I did have a choice, but I kind of fell into law. But what I really would like to do is to be a geriatrician, to work with the uh, old people. I think that would be pretty fascinating. And um, so, yeah, Milner.
0: Well, I was going to say, you know, there's a there's a rich tradition of milliners from from the west of Ireland from Galway so you know yeah you, you could be the next one in the
1: oh I don't think I could beat Miss Ring she's our Jennifer Ring she's phenomenal yeah um oh, I'll stick up my wig maybe
0: <laughs> thank you so much for speaking with us it's been an absolute delight and uh, we're just so proud to be promoting the book and sharing it with the uh, practitioners
2: Thank Helen, you. thank you. I'm wishing you continued success. And yeah,
0: thanks so much for doing the book. It's brilliant. Thanks for today, lady. Thanks, me and Rachel. Thank you, Roger. That's it for another episode of Obiter Dicta. Thanks to Helen Johnson for joining us on the podcast. And you can purchase the new edition of A Guide to Trademark Law and Practice in Ireland now on BloomsburyProfessional.com, or you can access it as part of your subscription to our online service, Intellectual Property and IT on BloomsburyProfessional Online. Until next time.